0: If you would please, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, today we are continuing our study in this 8th chapter, and we're progressing a little bit uh, more rapidly during this part of Matthew's gospel account, and that's something we haven't always been able to do. Uh, We were studying the Sermon on the Mount. We took months and months and months to look at that because we had to scrutinize very carefully every word that Jesus said to be sure that we did understand the meaning of those words. Well, as we move into chapter 8, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, Matthew moves us into a series of miracles that were intended to emphasize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. When Jesus had finished preaching a sermon on the mount, the people noted with what authority that he spoke. And now Matthew shows us why Jesus could speak with such authority. And so the miracles that we see here, especially in chapters 8 and 9, show us the full spectrum of God's power. Everything in this world belongs to God. Every creature is God's. Everything on the earth, every plant, every animal, every human being is under God's control. But not only does God control the visible physical world, He also controls the invisible spiritual world. And when we come to the next section on Matthew, where in Matthew, we are going to look at that and we'll see God's dominance over the powers of darkness, those forces of evil that war against our soul. But in the text that we're considering today, we find another facet of God's power, his power as the creator, because all natural forces are under his control. Gravity belongs to God, light belongs to God, sound belongs to God, the wind is God, the rain is God's. Anything that makes this world tick, behind it is the supreme ruler of this universe, Jehovah God. Now a verse that you really, couple of verses that you really need to remember in light of this is what Paul spoke to the church at Colossae. And he's speaking of Jesus and he says, For by him... Were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That statement is as clear a declaration as can be made that Jesus is God. By him all things consist. Who is God? Well, God's the transcendent one. He is outside of creation. All things were made by Christ, and if that's true, then it means that Jesus could not be what the Mormons claim that he is. He cannot be what the Jehovah Witnesses claim that he is. Jesus is not a created being. All things were created by him. He is before all things. So he's God, And that's the point that's very clearly made in these scriptures with all the miracles. And Matthew covers that entire spectrum of the physical, the spiritual, the natural, the supernatural. He is above all. And so Matthew gives us this irrefutable evidence that Jesus has the right to speak with authority because he is the God of all authority. I want to read the scriptures today beginning with verse number 23. And this miracle is the second in the uh, first of the second triad of miracles that we find in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And we'll note this as we go through that there, there is a pattern to this. We're given three miracles and then comes a section of teaching. Then there'll be three more miracles and then another section of teaching. Then three more and another section of teaching. And we'll note that as we go through. And so here we're at the second triad of miracles. And this is Jesus' power over nature. And then we're going to come to the next one, which is his power over demons and then power over sin. Now, here in this section, though, it's Jesus' power over nature. So stand with with me, if you would, please. And let's look at Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 23. Matthew 8, verse number 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look in your word today. And Lord, I just ask that you would help with the message today. Help me as I speak, and uh, may your Holy Spirit be with us as we look into this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now that is really a marvelous statement that's made by the disciples. And this is exactly the reaction that God intended when he showed Jesus' power over natural elements. And what we have here is a power that is peculiar to Jesus. Now if you'll glance over at the beginning of chapter 10 and we see here where Jesus called the 12 disciples and he he endowed them with certain supernatural abilities. And in verse number 1 of that scripture in chapter 10 it says, "...and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease." So Jesus granted the power to do some of the very same kinds of miracles that he did. Later, we find the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts was chosen as an apostle. And he was also given the power to cast out demons and to heal those that were sick. And we even see in some instances as we go through the New Testament that the apostles were given the power to raise people from the dead. When Peter was in Joppa, there was a faithful servant of the Lord, a woman who had died there in the city of Joppa. And Peter went to her after the woman had died. They'd already started preparing the body for the burial. They'd washed it and they were doing the preparations. And Peter went in and he prayed and he spoke to that woman and she came back to life. The power that the apostles had was not innate power. They weren't divine. What they had was the power of God that passed through them, and God was the one who was actually doing the miracles. So they were empowered to do certain types of miracles, and, and again, I say, some of the same things that Jesus did. But this miracle that Jesus did on the sea, this was never the type of miracle that was passed on to the disciples. They were not given power over nature. You may remember that the Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome and he was going to appear before Caesar. And on the way there, his ship got caught in a storm. And Jesus appeared to him in the night and he told him that the ship would be lost. But he said, there's no souls on this ship that will be lost, but all of them will be saved alive. But one thing that Jesus did not tell Paul, he did not say, Paul, I'm going to give you the power to stop this storm on the sea. Jesus didn't give the apostles that kind of power. So this is not the type of miracle that could be done by an apostle. But rather we have here that something unique, it's set apart, and the reaction that the disciples had, and that the accompanying ships that were going along there across the sea, the reaction that they had when they saw this, they said, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? We want to take a look at this today and see what truths we can draw from this portion of Scripture. And today, we're just going to get a start in this. There isn't really much to your outline this morning, because what I want to do here is just give you some background information. This is kind of an unusual sermon, not the normal thing that I preach. But I want to give you some background information about this miracle, and then we'll look into it a little bit more closely next week, that is, into the miracle itself But I want to start today by talking to you about the scene on the sea. And I hope that you don't mind me speaking of this, but I love to look into the Scriptures and draw on the experience that I had just a couple of years ago when Gary and I went to Israel. I I really appreciate Gary as a traveling companion. Uh, He made it possible, uh, somewhat possible, in order for me to make that trip, and there was just a lot of enjoyment that we had traveling together. And, and I would have to say that we were all struck by what we saw. Gary and I had a conversation about which parts of that trip were the most meaningful to us. Now, there wasn't anything that wasn't meaningful. Uh, you couldn't go to Israel and not be awed by the landscape of the Bible. Uh, having taught the Bible for 40 years and been studying it. Uh, who could not be captivated by the things that you saw there? Uh, being in the same places where uh, the great Bible stories took place, being there in places where King David was and where these apostles that we read about in Scriptures, where they were and the things that they did. But probably the most uh, awe-inspiring all, all thing that you could do is to walk in places where Jesus walked. I mean, you can't do that, really, without it getting goosebumps that run all over you. Now, most of what you see in Israel is uh, not as it was in the time that Jesus was there. There are mounds that have been built up upon mounds. And so when you go into a city like Jerusalem, you're not actually walking on the very same streets where Jesus walked. And that's because you have all that civilization in this intervening time that's been built up. But there is a place where you can, uh, right next to the western wall uh, in Jerusalem, you can actually go into a tunnel there that goes under the city. And there are streets there and there are buildings that you can see underneath ground, underneath the ground where that were there at the time of Jesus. But I remember when we were <coughs> visiting the city of Bethsaida, uh, at the time Bethsaida was located right on the Sea of Galilee. And I suppose that if you lived there, you could have thrown a rock, and you could have thrown it right into the Sea of Galilee. But with all the years of diversion of the water, with uh, irrigation that's gone on, the size of the Sea of Galilee is not quite the same as it was in the time of Jesus. And so the city of Bethsaida now is about two miles away from the shores of the sea. And that's one thing that made it a little bit difficult for them to identify this place. And the excavations of the Seda today are fairly recent. But when we went there, we did find something that was very, very interesting to me. And that is they uncovered a street there that they're almost 100% certain was there at the time of Jesus. And they're almost 100% certain because of the location of that street that it is one that Jesus would have walked on. And I remember when we went there that I walked across those stones where Jesus walked. Then our group moved on and they went to another place. And I turned around and I walked across the stones again. And then I walked across them a third time and then a fourth time. Then I sat down on a wall there right beside that and I just kind of looked at that for a little while And that was very inspiring to me. Now, I didn't speak in tongues or do anything like that. But but it was very inspirational to me to be able to be in the very same place where Jesus walked. And that was a moving experience. So Gary and I had these conversations about which parts of this trip were the most meaningful to us. And that particular day was a meaningful one to me. But the place that I really wanted to see more than any other when we went there was the Sea of Galilee. And that was my favorite place when I was in Israel. One day we got to go out on a, on a boat, one of the days that we were there, and that was a highlight of the trip. And so there was this, this shining moment, for me at least, when we were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, looking at the shore and looking at all the mountains that surrounded it. And you look down towards the south and there is an opening where in the mountains where Jesus would have walked as he went from Galilee up to Jerusalem. One thing that you really have to keep in your mind is the size of the Sea of Galilee. We're not talking about the Mediterranean here. This is not a huge body of water. In fact, it's not even a sea at all. In the Bible, sometimes it's referred to as a lake, and it has different names in the Bible. For instance, the Lake of Chennareth. And so, it's not really a sea, but it's a freshwater lake. It's 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. And the location and the topography of this lake is what really makes it so unique. And when you read about a storm on a lake, especially if you go to, the, to this particular area and you look at the Sea of Galilee, and perhaps you don't know much about it, and somebody tells you, well, there could be a storm on that lake. And you would think, well, I don't think that's very impressive little lake like that, uh, it's not all that big. I mean, you get out in the middle of lake and you can still see the shore from any point that you are. And so you really wouldn't think that it's too impressive that there would be a, there would be a storm on the Sea of Galilee. But what you have to be very much aware of is the natural forces that are at work there. The lake is 600 feet below sea level which makes it the lowest body of fresh water on the earth. In fact, the only place that's lower is the Dead Sea, and Dead Sea is salt water, and it's about 1,400 feet below uh, sea level. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded on all sides, or at least three sides, by mountains, and it's so low that it's actually like a bowl that catches all the water that runs off from the area that around it is around it. So you have water that runs down the ravines from the mountains into the sea. On the north side of it, there is the um, one of the more famous mountains in the Bible, and that is Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is a part of the mountain range that borders Lebanon. And at 9,200 feet, Mount Hermon has snow on it most of the year. And the snow melts from Mount Hermon feeds a lot of beautiful streams that flow through Caesarea Philippi, and then from there, they flow on down into the Sea of Galilee. On the east of the Sea of Galilee is the Golan Heights. Now, that's something you probably heard about in, in the news uh, lots of times, the Golan Heights. That's about 3,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee. And it's in the news a lot of times because that's a buffer zone between Israel and Syria. So when you go up there, there are lots of barbed wire fences and old military installations. Um, it's really a war-torn area. But that's about 3,000 miles above the sea. And so these mountains that surround the sea and the distance that the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, the cold water that feeds down from the mountains into the lake, all of that makes for some very unusual weather patterns. And maybe you didn't know this, but the meteorological aspects of the Sea of Galilee is a study in its own. Because it is such a unique place in the world. So it's like no other place in the world. It lies down in this deep depression. There's wind that comes over from the Mediterranean Sea. There's wind, cold air that comes down from the mountains that are on the north. Rushing down Mount Hermon. There's hot air that rises from the sea because it's down in that bowl. And on top of that, the wind actually picks up speed as it comes through those mountain ravines. You know, it's just like uh, taking water that's channeled from a huge pipe into a smaller pipe that it builds up a lot of pressure. And so as that air is coming down, that cold air is coming down the mountains, it comes down through those ravines. The pressure builds until it reaches the surface of the sea and it just explodes out upon the surface of the water. And so the lake gets churned up violently. And that can happen in just a matter of minutes. One moment, the sea can be calm and serene, like it was the day that we were on it. And in just a few minutes, a violent storm can occur. And when you're on the lake in the daytime, you can actually see these factors coming together. When we were there, uh, we were out on the lake and the sun was evaporating the water and you can see the haze as you look out over the Sea of Galilee. Now, I have a picture of that and if you look at that, you can see how hazy it, on, it is on this day as I took the picture and the haze is caused by that evaporating water coming up from, from the lake. And so when those cold winds come streaming down the ravines, the, the wind picks up speed and before you know it, there are deadly conditions that are on the sea. Now this might be a little bit unusual too, but the largest city that's on the Sea of Galilee today is the city of Tiberias. It's on the southwestern side and uh, this is where we stayed while we were there. Uh, And and the unusual thing about Tiberias in relation to this is that it's a city that has a seawall. Now here you are right next to a lake, what looks to be a little lake, and they have a seawall like you're right next to the Pacific Ocean. Water and the waves can get so so high coming through there that the water has actually been known to splash up into the town and tourists have been caught with that and drug out into the sea. So they have a seawall. Did we get that picture? Uh, there's the, the next one. Did everybody see that one? Oh, that was. Let's back up there a little bit, Dalton. That's the that's the haze that you see out on the Sea of Galilee, and the, as the as the evaporating the suns evaporating the water. And Then this next one is Tiberius, and that is the seawall that's there. And uh, they do that to protect it because the waves get so violent on that little body of water that it just washes right up into town. Now, aside from this violence that you have on the lake of the storms, uh, the the sea is actually a vital resource. Especially in the time of Jesus, it was because the conditions of the lake cause algae to grow there. And, and uh, there's so much food there for the fish that the fish multiply immeasurably. So a guy like me, who knows nothing at all about fishing, you'd have to be a total doofus to go out there and you couldn't catch his fish on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, back in the 1800s, they actually had, the late 1800s, they actually had a record haul of fish where they brought in 9,000 pounds of fish in one day. So today, you go to the Sea of Galilee. There are restaurants that are all around the sea, and they serve fish that come out of the lake. And it's uh, a fish that they call St. Peter's fish. I have a picture of that as well. And they serve this fish with the scales, the head, the eyeballs, and all. And uh, I remember there was a lady in our group that said, I'd like to have one of those fish for for my lunch. She said, but make sure that you cut the head off of it and don't bring me those eyeballs and that head on that fish. Well, for me, I don't like fish. And so I don't care if you call it St. Peter's fish. I don't care if you call it Michael the archangel fish. I'm not going to eat the thing. But but that the, all these fish the sea is is teeming with that. So all of these factors make the sea of Galilee a very active spot for miracles during the ministry of Jesus. So here is a place for miracles that would show without doubt that Jesus was God, and that he was able to command the waves and the sea and he can calm the ocean or calm the sea with just a spoken word. Now let's look at The scene here is everything gets set up for the miracle. First, I want to show you the source of the storm. The source of the storm. Last week, we talked about verses 18 through 22. And this was right at the moment when Jesus was about to get into the boat, and he was going to the other side of the sea. And just before he departed, there were these two disciples, these two men that came to him, and they thought that they would make pretty good followers of Jesus. And so they asked Jesus if they could get into the boat with him and to follow him. Now Jesus, as we know, laid out the red carpet for them. And uh, one of these guys was a scribe, and he was a real feather in Jesus' cap that he could have a scribe following him. So he just laid out the red carpet. How many of you were here last week? Well, you know that's not the truth, and I didn't see anybody shaking their head when I said that. No, Jesus didn't lay out the red carpet for him, but what he did, he didn't say, come climb into the boat with us. What he did was he laid out a scenario for discipleship that was not inviting at all. And so instead of pointing to all the fun and the games that go along with Christianity, instead of telling them that there are good times that are coming and if you become a Christian, you can become one of the king's kids. And I'm quite sure that you become a Christian, you'll have two chariots in your garage. You'll have a gold ring. You'll get a vacation house on the Sea of Galilee. Instead of filling their heads with all these stories of fame and fortune, Jesus told those two men, you have no idea what you're in for. You have no idea what it means to come and follow me. And he says, if you do that, you're going to be destitute of the world's goods. You won't know for sure where the next place you're going to sleep will be. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. If you're going to follow me, you have to be ready for hatred and hardship. And that wasn't much of a way to attract disciples. But Jesus didn't want anybody following him that would fall out later. Uh, and you have to get over this hump of satisfying yourself. If you think that's why you become a Christian, because you're going to satisfy yourself and all the things that you can get out of it, you can't follow him. You, you can't come to him and and think that you're going to receive all of that. You have to be unwil- You have to be willing to give up all of that if you want to get in Jesus' boat. Now, that is a huge problem for make-believe Christianity today, because what you find out in most churches today, that if it's not a whopping good time, and if there aren't shows, and if there isn't entertainment, and if there isn't a band, and if there isn't soft drinks and popcorn, and if you don't have something for the people that's real appealing to the flesh, then people don't want to come to your church. They don't want that brand of Christianity. Well, folks, there was no glitz, and there was no glamour with Jesus. All that he did was to feed his disciples with the word. And they were there for his teachings on hell and for his teachings on heaven. And quite frankly, folks, it seemed that most of the time, his teachings leaned toward the side of about hell, about eternal punishment for not doing what he said, rather than eternal rewards for doing everything that he said. And you know what this means? It means that if Jesus were to show up in about 95% of our churches today... They wouldn't even ask him to preach. Because these are the kinds of subjects that he talked about. Well, people today aren't disciples of Jesus. Because they don't really have an idea what it's like. They want to climb into the boat with Jesus because they think it's a cruise ship. And so they get in and they expect shuffleboard. And an all-you-can-eat buffet. Well, Jesus was ready to get away from those two. And from the crowds that wanted him as long as he had to offer Uh, something in his preaching that was about healing and not any preaching about hell. And so he was ready to go, and he told the disciples to prepare a boat, and they would go to the other side of the sea. Now, obviously, when he told them to do this, it was calm. They looked out over the water, and there weren't any waves. They couldn't see any trouble was coming. They didn't have to check the barometer and make sure that they could navigate on this particular day. As far as they were concerned, they would get in the boat, they would go to the other side, and there wouldn't be much trouble. But I want you to to know this, that when Jesus got into that boat, he knew exactly what was coming. And Jesus had them get into that boat, knowing full well what would happen here. Now, I've spent a lot of time here telling you about how a storm could arise naturally on the sea, and there were a lot of storms that were like that. There were a lot of boats that were sailing across the Sea of Galilee, all trying to get from one side to the other. You have a lake here that's teeming with fish. There are hundreds of fishermen that make their living there. It's a livelihood. And in fact, some of them did quite well at it. Peter and Andrew and James and John, that was their occupation. They were fishermen. They weren't redneck fishing buddies that had a a bumper sticker on the back of their wagon that said that work is for people that can't fish. These are guys that have a job catching fish. That's what they did. They knew the sea. And we notice here that when they looked out over it and they're getting ready to get into the boat, that nobody raised a red flag and said, I don't think we ought to do this. I don't think the night's the night for sailing. We need to stay on this side. No, Jesus had them get into the boat because it was a calm afternoon. And what he was doing was setting the stage to show his uncommon power. Now, later on, these disciples would get the power to heal sick people, but they wouldn't get this power. Jesus could defy gravity. You know, he did that at the ascension. And here Jesus is about to defy powerful uh, forces of nature. Now, I think at this point we we can add something to what I said earlier. There are some people who think that when they get into the boat with Jesus that there should not be any storms. And that there will not be any storms. But as you read through scripture, you'll find that's not the teaching of Jesus. It's not the teaching of the apostles. The apostle Paul said that we are going to suffer for Christ's sake. In fact, he said we're designed for this. And Peter said that a trial of faith is more precious than gold. And that might be a hard thing for us to figure out sometime. That God has designed this for us. And the reason that God does this is because a lack of trials would cause in us a lack of dependence. And we're going to see more of that in the next message. But Christians would become self-dependent rather than God-dependent if there were no trials. So what he's doing here, he's setting up a great teaching lesson for the disciples. Jesus was preparing them to come to him when they had no place else to go when they are totally destitute, when they have no help of their own, Jesus wants them to come to him. Now, it's better for you to find that out up front. That's why I'm telling you now, it's better to find it out up front rather than to waste time trying to do things by yourself when you can't do it. The conquering of trials helps us to know that we are God's children. And what better assurance is there to know that when you are in a situation which you think you cannot get out of, that it's impossible that you're going to get out of, and you you see where the trial is coming from and you recognize it, and you know that because God helped you, you are one of his children. What greater assurance can you find in that? Well, this is a storm then that's prepared to show the authority of Jesus. And we might note this as well, that the one who created this place created it for this demonstration. Here is a unique place among all the places that are in the world. No other place has these uncommon weather patterns. So I would submit to you that when God created this world, that he knew exactly what Jesus was going to do. He knew exactly what Israel was going to be like. He knew exactly what the topography needed to be. Because Jesus one day was going to show the mighty power that he has over the sea. That's the kind of God that we serve and that's what he does. So you see with all the sailing and all the ships and all the trips that had been made and all the boats that had been lost and all the people that had died in storms, not one time in all the history of the Sea of Galilee had anyone ever stood up in a boat and said to the winds and the sea, Peace be still. And what we have here is one more miracle that covers the spectrum, covers all the bases of the power of Jesus Christ, the one who made all things and by whom all things consist. Now, secondly, and we'll end here today, and that's the sleeping in the storm. The 24th verse says, And behold, there rose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. I want to refer you back to chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, I take you back there because it says Jesus had ended these sayings. Now, that means that Jesus was through with his teaching. And he'd been teaching there for a long time, just going straight through it. And have you ever you ever thought about how exhausting that teaching is? You know, I wish that I was naturally gifted for this. I wish that I could remember things easily and I could get up and preach without any effort. But I have to put a lot of time in this, to this. I, I, I prepare three sermons a week and it takes 36 to 40 hours to do that. And by the time we get to Sunday night and we're through with the preaching, I'm tired. Now, I told my wife a few weeks ago, uh, it was after church on a Sunday evening. It was after we'd had the Lord's Supper that night. And I said, I'm tired. Uh, I hate to see Monday come. Now, I love Sundays, but Monday, that's another story. Now, eventually, of course, what you do on Monday, the preparation that takes place, there that feels good and you're glad that you did it. But I'm tired. And Jesus had been teaching all of this time. And he came down from the mountain and all these uh, people were pressing him. You ever get tired of people? Go shopping right before Christmas to the mall, you know, and and tell me that you do that for a week and you come home and you're not tired of people. Well, Jesus was tired, tired of people. And all these people are coming after him. They think that he has all the gifts that he needs to help them. And so they keep coming over and over and over again, hours and hours and hours they're following Jesus. He came down from the mountain and there was a leper that approached him and so he healed him goes a little bit further and there are some Jewish elders that come to him from Capernaum and they tell him about a centurion whose uh, servant is sick and Jesus takes care of that. He gets ready to head over to that house. People are pushing and shoving, trying to get close to him and he's trying to take care of all the needs that they have and then he hears about Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick and the disciples have their own needs and so he goes over to her house and he heals her. And we learned that in that incident that uh, it was close to the end of the Sabbath and things quieted down for just a little bit to get the Sabbath over with. But as soon as it was over, which would be about 6 o'clock at night in our time, that um, these people kept coming again. It was time for them to go home. They should be going home and going to bed. But instead, they're bringing all the sick people to him again. And so crowds are gathering all around him. They're pushing, they're shoving, trying to get to him And Jesus didn't say, well, disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up a triage. Give me the names of the ones that are the worst among them, and I'll take care of them first. Oh, Jesus, the Word of God says, healed all that were sick. All of them. He stayed right there, kept on, kept on, and kept on. So he has no time to rest. So he tells the disciples, we're going to get to the other side of the sea. So he gets ready to get in the boat, and here come more people. Here come these two guys. He's trying to get away. And here come these two fellows that want to be his disciples. And Jesus had to deal with them. And I suspect that the conversation that we read here is not all that was said. But after hours and hours and hours of teaching and healing non-stop, he wants to get into the boat and get some rest. And he knows what's coming. He's the omniscient God. And he got into the boat and I suppose that... He hadn't been, everything hadn't been quieted down for about five minutes, maybe pushed away from the shore, and there he is, fast asleep, exhausted. Now, he's human as well as God, so he was exhausted, and he fell asleep in the boat. In the book of Mark, Mark tells us that he went to the hinder part of the ship, and he fell asleep on a pillow. Now, for you, you landlubbers, that's the stern of the ship. He went to the back of the ship, And the pillow that he fell asleep on was probably the leather seat that the helmsman sat on to pilot the boat. So he's there sleeping, and the storm comes, and the water is splashing in. Luke tells us, he says, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. So he's in the boat, and the boat is bobbing up and down. It's weaving in the water, pitched up and down. Water is splashing in on everybody. The boat is filling up with water, and it's about to sink. And Jesus is asleep like nothing's happening. A few years ago, my wife and I were in Bar Harbor, Maine, and we were going over to Nova Scotia. So we got into a boat, a big boat, and we're going to Nova Scotia, and there was a storm that came up. And as we were going along, that boat was being pitched up and down and pitched up and down. And if you know my wife, she can't walk across the street. That's too much motion without getting sick. So she's riding, we're riding in this boat and she's turning as white as a ghost. And she started throwing up everywhere. That's not too pleasant, but she started throwing up everywhere. And there were people headed for the bathrooms and... So she decided to get some air and, and she went up to the bow of the ship and it's heaving up and down and water splashing across the bow and she was soaking wet and she looked, you know, she looked like a, a drowned rat that's sick as a dog. I mean, that's, that's what she looked like. So there's all of this that's going on and Jesus is fast asleep. Not a care in the world, not a bit of fear, just totally unshakable. Next week, we're going to look into the specifics of the miracle or, or the storm. And I want you to get this picture in your mind right now, though. Here is a storm, a terrible storm. All the factors are there that I've told you about, a violent storm. And Jesus is sleeping right through it. Now, if it was me, I, I would know what's coming like Jesus did if I was him. And I'd be preparing. I mean, I'd be going over in my mind exactly how I was going to deal with this. I know I have to teach a lesson on the storm. It's coming up. I wouldn't be asleep. I'd be sitting over there going over my notes. And and I'd be trying to figure out how to get my point across. How how can I make myself clear about this? Jesus has no need for preparation. He, He doesn't have one eye open. He's not peeking around to see if everything's set up properly. And when we get ready for a baptismal service, um, I call Lido ten times to see if there's water in the baptistry. And then I, I uh, call him back again, and I check to see if the heater's turned on so the water won't be cold. And then I call Julie, and I said, you need to track him down, make sure he's done this, and have him call me back and let me know it's done. And then, after all that, I come over here and I check it myself. I go up there, and I climb, climb the steps back there, stick my hand down in the water to make sure it's not cold And then I make sure that the water's either deep enough or not too shallow so we can baptize like we're supposed to. And then on the day that we baptize, I get up there in the baptistry. Somebody goes back there with me to help me get all arranged, get the clothes done, make sure I get my microphone off so I don't electrocute myself. And that didn't happen last time. I got into the water with the microphone, and I I know there was some kind of conspiracy there to get rid of me. But I was able to get over that. But I prepare. Jesus didn't worry about any of that. This is his storm. He doesn't need any preparation. He just slept on. Perfect peace and tranquility. And he just rested there until the disciples discovered, we can't do anything about this storm. We are going to die in this storm. And so Jesus just slept on until they awakened him. Now let me finish with this, folks. We, we can get all excited about the stuff that goes on in our lives. We can get all shook up about finances and about our health and about our kids and about our jobs and about this and about that. And we think that we're in a mess that there is no possible way we'll ever get out of. We don't get any rest. We stay up all night thinking about it and worrying about it. And all the while, Jesus is asleep in the boat. It doesn't worry him he's not concerned about it. He already knows about the storm. And something you need to know, he prepares a lot of those storms for you. He's waiting to see how you're going to react. Who are you going to call on when there's a storm? Storms don't mean anything to him because just effortlessly he speaks the word and he calms the raging sea. And you see, Jesus calmed the storm, but they're still on the sea, aren't they? I mean, what Jesus didn't do, he didn't dry up the Sea of Galilee and leave the boat sitting on a dry lake bed. No, the water is still there because Jesus is control in control of the water. And when calm come, comes into your life, the water doesn't have to be gone. It just means you have to have the ability to float on top of it. And that's what Jesus does for us. So we're going to leave this story here today. Jesus is in control. When, when you're in his boat, a storm can come, but you never have to be fearful or afraid. The winds and the water obey him. And there is a wonderful picture of salvation in this. You cannot do anything about the storm. The elements are too much for you. And you can be a seasoned sailor. You can have honed your skills for all of your life, and you think, I can take care of myself. I can do what I want. I'm in control of everything. But you're going to find out someday you had control of nothing at all. You can't do anything about the storm. Only Jesus can save your soul. And so, the best thing for you to learn right now is to give up trying yourself. Give up trying to do whatever it is you want to do to get into heaven, to try to be one of God's children, whatever it is. Give up all of that stuff because the only way that you're ever going to get there is when you come to the place that you say, I can't do it, only Jesus can. What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Again, just a marvelous statement by the disciples and exactly where God wants them to be, exactly what he wanted them to know, and it's what he wants you to know today. Even the winds and the sea obey him because he's God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're in your word today. We ask you, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to the realization of who Jesus is and what he can do Help us to give up all hope in ourselves, to do, to rely completely on Him for our soul's salvation, and then for everything that takes place in our life, we know God that You are in control. Bless our people today. Speak to hearts as we sing this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's